yeah, so Pinky is just one of those lovely people I got to meet early on in Zoom, and then we uh, weren't connected for a while, and we had a good chat the other day, and I was walking around shopping. Um, Pinky, I can't wait to hear you. Take as long as you need. And, uh, yeah. Cool. Thanks, Mark. Um, well, I'm Pinky, and I'm an alcoholic. Uh, I am, my, my sobriety date is January 3rd. 2020. Um, my last drink was actually December 29th, not 2019. And uh, on New Year's Eve of 2019, I went into treatment um, because I had had enough. <laughs> I was at my wits end in terms of I I feel like I'm a husk of a person. I don't feel, you know, I was drinking all the time. Um, didn't, you know, there, there were consequences starting to happen. And um, I had no friends. At, my marriage was strained at best. And uh, by the end of 2019, I really just, I didn't know what else to do to feel good. I didn't feel good. Uh, I felt bad all the time. And <clears throat> what I told the treatment intake people was, I, I have this beautiful life. I actually have a lot of good things going on. Um, and I'm miserable. I hate it. I hate everything. <laughs> uh, and so what? what's up with that? You know, I, I don't know. I don't understand why I can't be happy. Um, and so that was, that was the beginning of my recovery. Um, from alcoholism. Uh, but I want to back up a little bit because my story doesn't start there. Uh, that's just, that's where my recovery story starts. So I, I want to share a little bit about what, what it was like before. Um, because there's about 39 years of history <laughs> uh, that I won't take a ton of time to, to talk about because it is, once you hear my story, you'll, you'll hear that it's very similar to, to what many people in recovery um, have experienced in their lives. Uh, although mine has various, you know, a certain flavor to it. Um, I am uh, in the U.S. I, I was born in Arizona out west. Um, I actually lived in England for a little while when I was a baby, uh, but eventually landed with my family in North Carolina, which is uh, on the East Coast, uh, about six hours south of, south of D.C. Um, and uh, I, we moved here in the early 80s, so when I was a very small child, I don't really remember living anywhere else, um, even though I did have other uh, residences. I, this, where I live now, which is still in North Carolina, is where I have I've lived uh, since the early 80s, so almost 40 years. And uh, by all accounts, our, my family looked happy, privileged, successful, peaceful, even um, on the outside. And, and even upon reflection, I look back at my childhood and um, I can't help but think like it was, it was pretty good. My, my parents were together. Um, they, you know, they stayed married there, you know, until they both passed. And um, my dad was employed his entire life and or his entire adulthood and he was very successful uh you know didn't climb too many ladders but we were middle class suburban white 
family um, living the American dream, you know, had the house, had the property, had the the three kids. I have uh, an older brother and a younger brother. So I'm the middle child, um, the only daughter. Uh, and so all of these things, I, I want to frame it that way because one, I want to acknowledge the privilege that I come from and, and the fact that uh, that isn't, that that kind of thing, that kind of external view isn't always what it seems. Um, because the realities of the way I responded to that childhood um, resulted in me being where I am today. Uh, better for better or for worse. And so, um, you know, what I've learned in recovery is that my parents were both alcoholics. Uh, there was no alcohol in my family though. There was no alcohol, like my, they didn't drink. Um, in fact, my mom always was like, there's addiction in our family. Addiction runs in our family. Don't drink. You know, whatever you do, stay away from it. And so like I was warned and I don't know who other than maybe my dad's uncle um, so a great uncle that I never had any interaction with, I didn't really understand where that was coming from, uh, but she was insistent. So, uh, the, the addiction that was in my family, uh, was present, but not obvious. Um, and the way one of my parents coping mechanisms on both sides, um, was to turn to religion. And so I was raised very um what's now known as evangelical so not southern baptist even though i grew up grew up in in south in the south of the u.s um but very fairly fundamental very evangelical um and and you know a lot of, of what we're seeing today as being um prominent in even in american politics and, and all of that like this kind of stereotypical American Christianity, evangelical, like that's what I was raised with. And it was oppressive to say the least. Um, and it is, if this is a, a belief system that you hold to. This is not a, uh, this is not commentary on your belief system. This is my experience. So I just want to make sure that that boundary um, exists. This was my experience and what, you know, uh, I, I went through. Um, and so my parents loving, you know, and they, they absolutely loved us. They wanted to provide what was best for us and they had their own issues. They had their own traumas that they hadn't dealt with. Um, and I didn't, of course I didn't know that. And they really didn't know that they didn't have the tools either. So this is also not a blaming them for anything. Um, it is absolutely the way that I responded to my environment and, I was really into Christianity for a while um, until I was around 16. I was like, yeah, you know, this Christianity thing, God, Jesus, like I got saved and baptized and all the things. And I was, I wanted to be a good girl. Um, I, what I developed, I developed my perfectionism very early on because I wanted, I had the fear of God, you know, I was, was preached at constantly. Um, I went to a private Christian school and so I was in church pretty much seven days a week. I was, I was getting some sort of Christian uh, dogma every day, uh, whether it was in church or a Bible class or youth group or, um, you know, whatever gathering it was, it was, I, I was 
I was inundated with it. And so I, I, I bought into it because it like, oh, I want to be saved. I don't want to go to hell. I don't want to, I don't want to be bad. Um, and so I took that, my, my child brain and body uh, took that information and said, well, uh, I have to be like Jesus. So that means I have to be perfect. Like I'm striving for this perfection because Jesus is perfect. God is perfect. You know, all of these things. Oh, and, and by the way, I, I don't want to disappoint my parents. Um, my dad, especially, I, I really, I wanted his approval more than anything. And uh, I think that's one of the areas where I developed this achievement, this desire for achievement, because if I achieved, then I would get praise from my dad. And uh, I was a daddy's girl uh, in, in the sense of uh, we were close my whole life. We were, we were close. And um, I, anything he was doing, I wanted to be a part of and I wanted to be involved with. And he had anger issues. He, um, I never knew when he was going to blow up. I never knew uh, it was a bit of eggshell walking <laughs> with him. And, um, and at the same time, he could be really loving and caring and, and, you know, that kind of thing. So it was a very um, confusing. It was, it's confusing now <laughs> thinking about it, but at the time I was like, well, I have to be perfect and I have to be careful. So that's, that's how I, um, show began to show up in life. Uh, my mom had her own set of issues where, um, she had a lot of health problems throughout her life and especially her adult life. And I think she had some untreated mental health problems and, and reading some of her old journals. Uh, again, I'm not here to diagnose anyone, but I just, I recognize that both of my parents struggled with addictive behaviors. They had the isms. They just didn't drink. They didn't have a program either. Um, uh, you know, somebody mentioned food at the beginning and like food. I have a really tough relationship with food because my mom, um, my mom also didn't have a good relationship with food. She used food as a coping mechanism, both in uh, withhold, you know, not eating and poor eating and eating so much sugar. Like my mom had her own addictions uh, that eventually actually led to pills. Uh, and, and part of the, she was a victim of the opioid, opioid uh, epidemic in the U S unfortunately. And, um, I'll get to that in a bit, but, uh, so my parents were addicts and that's something I didn't learn until I went into Al-Anon, um, about a year and a half ago. Uh, and I'll get to that in a bit as well. So parents are addicts. They don't have program. All they know is religion as a coping mechanism. And I adopted that as well. Um, and what I, but what I learned as I got older is religion is made up. <laughs> you know, I, I got to, to high school and, and, you know, started to explore concepts on my own, switched churches, did the Presbyterian thing. Um, you know, tried out different denominations. And the more that I learned about religion, the less confident I felt in its ability and its structures uh, to support me in what I, in what I was learning. Um, and so I graduated high school. Uh, I suffered from depression in high school, never got any help for it. Just 
processed through my friends and music. I got really into music. I was in a band. And so I had these outlets. I had these creative outlets where I was processing. But by, you know, 18, I hadn't had a drink yet. Um, I really didn't. Uh, like I said, I was a good girl. I was at goody two shoes. I, I wanted to be the perfect child and the perfect student and the perfect person um, so that I could get everyone's approval and go to heaven and blah, blah, blah. And uh, I graduate high school somehow sane. Not, I don't think I was sane. <laughs> I think I was pretty insane. Uh, go to a college and go to, decide to go to a, a public college here in uh, near home and start learning about all of the things my Christian education hadn't taught me, you know, about evolution, about the universe, about all of these things. And so that coupled with this um, realization that religion isn't what I was told it was, you know, and that's Bible, like there was more to this stuff than, than what I was taught. Uh, and so as I began my deconversion from Christianity, uh, I started opening my mind to other things and that's where alcohol and, and drugs started coming into play. Um, I, I had my first drink actually in England with my parents. Um, I was 18. We had gone on a trip and they wanted to take me to our child, my childhood home when I, when I was a baby. And so we went on this trip and, and I remember <laughs> never forget your first drink, right? I had my first drink and it was, it was a glass of wine and it was like the boldest wine you could possibly get. And every drink I took, I was like fighting to like uh, absorb it, but man, it felt good. I felt awesome. And I was like, yes, this feels so good. Um, you know, I, I understand now. I understand why people do this. And yeah, I want some more. And I, I didn't start out. I don't think I started out unable to control my drinking because I, I could have one and, you know, be done. Um, uh, you know, I didn't start out with blackout drinking. I, I was definitely the type where um, I had a chance <laughs> to avoid the uh, the substance, the, the issues with substance. But I, I say it that way because I always had these isms, right? I was raised with addictive behaviors. I was raised um, learning how to cope in with a addictive coping mechanism. So whether it was alcohol or some other substance, it was going to be something. So anyway, um, alcohol turned out to be really cool. And so I, you know, start drinking casually. And at the same time, I'm deconverting from Christianity. I leave my church. I meet uh, the man who is now my husband. And as I leave my church and, um, start expanding into this new life that I'm building for myself, I lose all of my community. Um, I started dating my husband uh, in 2000 and he was, he was not from the church. And so everybody was like, Oh, he's doing this to you. He's deconverting you. He's making you do this. And uh, that was insanely frustrating as you can imagine, because I'm sitting here like I've done all this work for myself. And everybody around me is saying, he's bad for you. He's bad for you. He's bad for you. He's a bad influence. And like, like it was his idea that I not believe in Christianity or God or whatever, um, which was absolute bullshit. Uh, so 
that made me even more determined to say, fuck you, you're clearly not good for me. And I'm leaving the church because if I can't think for myself, then I'm out, uh, you know, in this scenario, I'm going to go someplace where I can think for myself. And so that um, is where I kind of completed my deconversion, left the church, and as a result, left all of my community. I lost all of my friends, lost all of the support system that I had because for 20 years I'd been in the church and I'd been dedicated and that's where all my friends were and, and you know, they weren't going to understand the people I, the, the people I were with, like, weren't going to understand. I couldn't tell them I'm an agnostic atheist now and still be friends. Like that just didn't work for them. They weren't mature enough for that. Um, and so I, I continued drinking, um, started smoking pot, actually, uh, tried ecstasy before I smoked pot, had no interest in marijuana. Uh, I liked beer. I liked drinking, um, marijuana was like, I don't really care. I don't know what the point is. Um, and then I did ecstasy and discovered the point of marijuana. (laughs) And so like these, these drugs like really started to open my mind and, um, and, and like all this time, like my drinking is starting to increase more and more and I'm being less careful. And I'm, I'm again, don't have any support systems, don't have any program, don't have anybody, um, other than the, the friends that I'm starting to create, uh, and this this work that I'm doing, I'm starting to learn about yoga and meditation and Tai Chi, martial arts. Uh, you know, I'm starting to get some of the tools. I'm getting a little bit of, uh, I'm getting a little snippet of a program here and there. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. Yoga is really cool. I feel really good when I when I do this thing. Um, and so, in some ways, I got exposed to a little bit of that stuff, a few of the concepts early on in my 20s. But man, alcohol was so much simpler. Alcohol was so much simpler to just go home and pull a beer out of the fridge and then have two more. And, you know, like that just, it just, it worked so quickly and it was so simple. I didn't have to sit for, you know, in silence with my head and all of my thoughts and my, you know, all the crazy shit that was going on in in my body and like whatever was happening. So yeah, I, I did yoga and yeah, I started to meditate, but alcohol was my, became my solution. Uh, and it was sometime later in my late twenties when I started to just, it, when it really started to result in, uh, consequences, um, getting kicked out of a Dave and Buster's, um, was a first for me. Uh, for those of you not, not familiar with the Dave and Buster's, it's a, a big arcade and a big arcade game place where you can have restaurants and bowling, um, lanes. And, uh, so it's this big like game place where, um, there's drinking and there are games and I was drinking my face off and just losing my mind, um, and just losing all control. And I got so mad when I got kicked out of there. Uh, I actually walked out before they dragged me out. They didn't have to pick me up, um, but they'd stop serving me at one bar. I go over to one of the other bars and I'm like, I'd like a drink. And they're like, no, we can't serve you. I'm like, how the fuck do you know? And I got so mad that they wouldn't give me. I'm like, I'm fine. Like, What's wrong? And then I realized there were some people coming up behind me. And I was like, I'm going to leave right now before I get my ass kicked out. 
and it was humiliating. Um, and I didn't think I was the problem at that point. Like it didn't, it, it wasn't me. I wasn't the problem. They were just too uptight and, you know, whatever. I, I had some excuses. Um, and so this, this kind of behavior just started to escalate. It became worse. Uh, I jumped out of a car um, because I got really angry that somebody in the backseat had broken one of my CDs that was really, and if you don't know what a CD is, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, I, I got really angry that the CD had gotten broken because it was a really rare thing. And uh, and I got, I just got so angry and my husband wouldn't stop the car. And, and uh, so I climbed out and um, fortunately he slowed down enough to where I didn't hurt myself. But I was like, fuck this. And, you know, just the insanity took hold. And um, I had, I, I, I just thought this was a shitty life that, you know, that I just, that everybody is, is shitty to me. Why is everybody, you know, so awful? Um, Cause I'm fine. Like I'm, I'm fine. What, you know, you're the problem. There was a lot of that, even though it wasn't like victim, like you did this to me, but you're the problem. It, it was much more of that. Like there wasn't a problem with me. I was just fine. I knew what I was doing. I'd come out of Christianity. Like I'd saved myself <laughs> from this dogma and this, you know, um, upbringing that was really toxic for me. Uh, so I continue drinking, I, you know, I, I continue actually getting really successful in my job. I became a software engineer because that's what I thought my dad would want me to do. I got a computer science degree because that's what um, would get his approval. Uh, at least that's what I thought, you know, and, and so I, I did all of these things um, thinking they were my, they were what I wanted, but they were what I thought other people wanted. And this is only in hindsight that I, that I can say this. Um, so I, I do all of these things and, and I'm getting successful. I'm, you know, at a job that's high stress, a consulting, writing software, becoming a leader, becoming a manager. And the coolest thing about that consulting gig was there was booze at every event, every event that was booze. And I could be the cool manager and be the last manager with a credit card to leave so I could close the tab out, right? Uh, and so that's, that's my, my drinking escalated in that scenario, uh, in, in that environment. And uh, then I discovered craft beer. The craft beer you know, thing really became a big deal in the U.S. And um, uh, like in the 2010s or so. And so I got into that and I, I could drink whatever I wanted then because I'm a craft beer nerd. I have to try it. I'm just tasting like I've got to experience all these things. So I had a reason to drink a lot. Uh, and I started brewing my own beer and that was even more reason. And so like this insane thinking of I'm going to brew beer I can, and this is a way for me to make a lot of beer really cheaply and drink at the same time with a bunch of other people, right? So it became a group thing and I found my people and spoiler alert, there are a lot of alcoholics in that community, um, and whether they know it or not. And um, I, at this point, I started driving drunk a lot uh, because I was going to these club meetings and driving home. You know, I just had tasters, but 
fucking hell. I, yeah, I was drinking a lot and driving home all the time, um, a lot of times. And I, I, it's, I don't believe in miracles per se, but if I did believe in miracles, it was a miracle that I didn't get pulled over. Um, I, I don't know how I didn't get a, a DUI or DWI. Like I just, I, I was asking for it. Um, I, I, yeah, I was tempting fate with, with no regard for the consequences. And, and that was insanity. And I started, um, you know, I got, a, I got a new job at a startup and they, they took the drinking at work to another level. There was liquor on the counter, um, at, at in the break room, uh, as well as wine and beer on tap and, and drinking at lunch was a normal thing. And, uh, on their quarterly, uh, meeting days, everybody was drinking for uh, like 9am and, uh, spoiler, there are a lot of alcoholics in tech too. <laughs> Um, and, and so like, I was surrounded by people that, uh, did what I did. I had surrounded myself. I found my people and I found a way to excuse away all of, all of my drinking. Um, because as I got into my thirties, like I had no friends. I, I had abandoned all my friends. If any of the friends that I had built, the friendships that I had built up in my twenties, you know, I, would get irritated at. Um, I, I thought women were difficult just in general. Like I had said, I'd labeled all women as being dramatic and I can't have relationships with women because it's too much work. And so I basically put up this big giant wall between me and, and any woman who wanted to, to be friends with me. Uh, and I was friends with, with men because I could talk surface with a guy because there was a, a clear boundary. My, my, I was with my husband. And so there, there couldn't be a, a crossing of, of intimacy or anything like that. So I didn't have to go deep with, with guys. So I didn't have to explore who I was or what I was feeling at any time. Um, I could just drink and like, sweet, that's awesome. And philosophize and, you know, talk about uh, how there is no God and, you know, what does that mean for life? And, and just, um, pontificate and I didn't have to explore anything about myself uh, so drinking was absolutely an escape and it was man I love the effect I love the effect and so you know fast forward to 2019 well no 2017 so 2017 um, this is this is six years ago actually uh, almost to the day this is around this time of year um, six years ago uh, is really when my I, I began bouncing along my bottom, and it started with um, on March twenty seventh, twenty seventeen. A close friend of mine died suddenly of uh, some curious cardiac event. Uh, he was thirty nine years old, and uh, I was uh, thirty seven at the time, and um, it was devastating. I had just talked to him a couple of weeks ago. He lived in California. Uh, so we weren't like talking all the time day to day, but, uh, you know, we were online and chatting uh, a lot and he, like, he was gone. Um, he was dead. And, and that just, it rocked me. Uh, but <laughs> the hits kept coming. And uh, a week and a half later, my brother and sister-in-law lost a baby at 26, 25 weeks into their pregnancy. The baby had a name, Amelia. And like, there was just, she was the first uh, of 
she was the first grandchild of my parents. So like first kid in, in the family um, of, of me and my brothers and um, devastating. Uh, but the hits kept coming. Uh, and two weeks later, my mom died suddenly. Um, cause of death is unknown, but well, they, the coroner says heart attack. My dad didn't want to do an autopsy, but we all suspect, I suspect um, it was related to pills because she, uh, she was on morphine and oxy and like all the stuff um, for, for chronic pain. And uh, she, she didn't take her medications as prescribed. And uh, there were all these, uh, it, was, it was just a mess. She, her life was uh, a mess in the last couple of years. And I was devastated. So to, to lose these three, to have these three losses um, within three or four weeks of each other was just devastating. And my solution, alcohol. Uh, I got harder and heavier into drinking, um, started drinking liquor on a regular basis. Gin and tonic was my jam, light on the tonic. <laughs> and um, oh, gosh, even thinking about it now, I, I just remember how many drunken conversations I had with family about the losses and just, uh, you know, being drunk at, uh, I, well, I, was, I think I was, I guess I was sober at my mom's funeral, but you know, as sober as one gets uh, between midnight and you know, two o'clock the next day, um, not drinking in that time period. So I was sober. I, I thought I was sober, but I sure as hell drank afterwards. Uh, and I drank a lot and it was, um, the insanity just got worse. And so uh, I, I found a therapist. I, I was really, really going to, to dark places because at this point, it's like, what the point, what's the point of life? What's the point? You know, I didn't want to die. Like I wasn't thinking about, I want to die, but I was thinking like, what's the point of life? I'm, you know, there's all this misery and, and I'm miserable and, and I have a husband and a house and a car, but like, I am fucking miserable. And now my mom is gone and I don't ever get to see her again. And yes, our relationship strained. And so like all these questions, big questions. So I find a therapist. Um, she convinces me or, or in our work together, I decide to get sober for some amount of time. I was not convinced I was an alcoholic and I figured if I could stop drinking, for a little bit, then I'll be good. Um, I'd do the grief work and then, you know, I could start drinking again. So I did that. Uh, I got sober for six months. Um, and it was awful. <laughs> it was miserable. I didn't get rid of alcohol in my house. So I had alcohol in my house. I had nothing else changed. Nothing else changed. I was still doing, I was still smoking, um, uh, I, uh pot and, you know, just, like nothing else in my life changed. I just stopped drinking and it was awful. Although I was able to do some of the grief work, I was able to, to start building some tools, um, but it wasn't enough. And so in 2018, I picked up again. Uh, I never went to any AA meetings. I never went to any recovery smart or anything like that. I didn't think I was an alcoholic. I thought if I could stop, that made me not an alcoholic. So I didn't need any of that stuff. I didn't need recovery. I just needed to stop drinking. So um, when I decided to start drinking again, I was like, oh, I'll just have one beer. I'm at a friend's birthday party. I'll just have one because I, you know, I'm not an alcoholic. I can do that. Uh, nope. Nope. I didn't just have one. Oh, I'll just, I'll just have a second one. 
because that first one really didn't do anything. And I was shocked because six months over and uh, it, like one beer doesn't make me drunk. Okay, well, two beers will make me drunk. Three beers will make me drunk. Six beers. Well, like I didn't, it was the most bizarre drinking night I've ever had because it, I didn't feel drunk. I didn't feel relief. I didn't feel any of the things that I used to get from alcohol. Uh, and that was just so depressing. And, but I was at a birthday party. So, you know, trying to put on the mask and, and show up for my friend. And, um, but on the inside, it was just like, what the fuck? This doesn't, this isn't enjoyable anymore. (laughs) I want it to be enjoyable. And so I continued drinking. It got worse. I went back to, you know, all of my old drinking behaviors and, wasn't dealing with my feelings and wasn't doing yoga, wasn't meditating, wasn't using any of the things that would actually make me feel good. Um, and so 2018 continued to drink and, and, uh, 2019, my mother-in-law dies of lung cancer. Um, my husband's uh, mom and I, I lose it again. Uh, we weren't super close, but with my mom's death, I had adopted her as my new mom, you know, kind of like, oh, well, I'm just going to embrace you as my mom. And and I did, and I'm glad I did. And it was, it gave us some really great time um, together in her last year or so. Uh, but when she died, I, I just, I could not, I, I felt like I wanted to throw up every day and not from hangovers, but just like the amount of anxiety, of crushing anxiety and crushing just feelings. Um and drinking wasn't helping and all this stuff. And so my therapist convinced me, let's go on some medication. So I go on an antidepressant. And as a, the antidepressant starts to level me out, I realize, you know, you're not supposed to drink on this antidepressant I'm on. I'm like, okay, cool. I cannot drink. Hell, I can't. <laughs> I couldn't stop. I was like, okay, I'll just have one. And I'll just have two. And, like, and the cycle would just continue. And then I'd beat myself up over, I can't fucking just have one. I'm on this antidepressant. I'm feeling supposedly better. And I like, I feel awful still. So I was doing all this stuff. And so by the end of 2019, I, I got to, I finally settled at my bottom and said, fuck it. I'll try. I'll try this treatment thing, this outpatient treatment thing. Uh, I don't want to go to AA, but I'll try this treatment thing. Maybe the medical community has something for me. So I go to treatment and I get myself checked in and they say, you have to go to AA meetings. And I'm like, well, what about smart? And what about this? And like, no, it has to be AA. You have to go you know, four times a week, I'm like, four times a week. I'm already here three times a week and like all this shit. Um, but I was desperate. So I was like, fuck it. All right. I'll, I'll do what y'all say because I feel awful. I just, I feel so, there aren't words. Um, Well, there are. And and actually there's a a bit in the big book that I always go back to. And I just happened to to read it the other night at a meeting. Um, And it's the bit where he talks, where Bill W talks about uh, being in quicksand and a bitter morass of life is stretched around me. And, you know, and, and the quicksand metaphor just really resonates with me because that's how my soul felt. That's how my insides felt. Like I am in this quicksand, I'm sinking. There's some beautiful things around me, but I can't reach them and I can't access any of the, the good things in my life. Um, and so I was desperate to, to try something else. And so I just, I became willing. 
that was the first big step for me uh, was to just become willing to listen to what people who had more experience had to say, to listen to what some professionals who'd seen people come in and out had to say, uh, and to listen to y'all. Um, because, you know, I wouldn't have come into AA if treatment hadn't forced me. Um, because I thought I saw all the God shit in the steps and was like, fuck that. I've, you, you heard all of religion I was raised with. I know what that God stuff is. And I know, like, I know what that does to me. That will take me out. I will go drink if you make me believe in God. And I thought I, I came at it with a very, um, I, I read the, the steps with a religious slant. I had my religious religion detector goggles on and I saw step three said you have to ask jesus christ in your heart because that's how you'll be saved like that's what i thought the third step meant and uh thank goodness it does not mean that (laughs) at all um but that's what i that's what the resistance that i came in with uh and the and i want i can't emphasize willingness enough because willingness is is what saved me willingness is what gave me a chance to um, to figure out what recovery looked like for me. Um, so I start going to AA meetings. I had to get a sponsor. I did not want to get a sponsor. None of us want to get a sponsor, right? Like I didn't want to get a sponsor. I didn't want to call people. I, I didn't want to do any of this stuff. But tre- uh, treatment the treatment program said to stay in the program. You have to be sober from all substances so no no pot no nothing so completely sober uh from substances i have to go to you know this many meetings i have to have a sponsor i have to work the steps i have to get to a certain step to get to the next level of the program in order to to graduate and this is where my perfection worked a little bit for me (laughs) because now i want to be perfect at this treatment thing at recovery um so i was like okay i'll do i'll do what y'all say and my rebelliousness said, I'll do what you say so I can prove to you that it's stupid. <laughs> like that was my attitude uh, on a lot of this stuff. And um, some of it is stupid <laughs> for me. <laughs> you know, like I don't believe in God. Um, I, I am still an agnostic atheist. Or, uh, that has not changed. Um, I, I, I don't, I resist the We Agnostics chapter in the big book because it says you'll figure it out eventually. You'll find God eventually, and and uh, it's not stupid, but it's not for me. Like I, that's not for me. Um, so there are some things that you know when we say take what works and leave the rest. Like yeah, that's that's what I've done. Um, and there have been a lot of tools like this group, um, Secular AA, saved my life. Uh, that's the other thing I would say willingness and secular AA have been the things that have saved my life because coming into groups where you don't believe in God, she doesn't believe in God or, or you do believe in God, but it doesn't matter. Like you're not telling me I have to believe in God, like having that safe space that is prayer free. That is, um, I won't say religion free because that's, uh, that's not the point, but where it's, it's safe. Like that, that's the biggest thing for me. It is safe to be an agnostic atheist and not feel like y'all are going to reject me because of that. Um, 
because like rejection is a big thing for me, right? I got to be perfect. So you don't, so you'll accept me. And, and uh, I was actually just on the, on a call with another um, alcoholic working through my own recovery from perfectionism. And um, anyway, that, you know, that is the, the, these groups have been hugely important and I was fortunate enough to have a secular in-person meeting um, in my town or at least close to my town and um, got connected with them, saw other atheists saying sober, staying sober with the 12 steps as principles. Um, and it's like, oh, there's hope. Okay. All right. Let me, let me give this thing a try then. So I started working the steps and I, I want to run real quickly through um, how I worked each step, because I think it's important um, for agnostic atheists to talk about this because it is like, how do you work the steps of God in it when you're an agnostic atheist? So I'm going to share how I did it or my, the tools that I've put together for myself along the way. Um, because I, I just, I don't know, I, I needed to hear that when I, when I was new. Um, so step one, admitting we were powerless and life is unmanageable. And I'm going to use the traditional steps just because that's the, the program that I work. Uh, and I'll share some additional resources that I used um, to help me get to these points. But, the you know, step one, powerlessness and life is unmanageable. I kind of, powerlessness was pretty easy for me to to recognize because I came in, I'm like, I can't fucking, like, my, this is crazy. Um, uh, and I can't change anything about it, right? So, like, I connected with my powerlessness pretty quickly. Uh, the unmanageability part wasn't real obvious to me um, because, like I said, I hadn't, there were some consequences that hadn't come true yet. Uh, you know, no DUIs, hadn't lost a job. Um, my husband was still with me, though <laughs> definitely not happy with me. Um, so there were, you know, there were a lot of things that I hadn't lost yet. Uh, so, uh, you know, my bottom was kind of, I'm a high bottom. <laughs> yep. Uh, high bottom alcoholic and um, hopefully I can keep it that way. No guarantees. Uh, but, you know, accepting that uh, and that my life can be unmanageable and is unmanageable when I'm out there getting kicked out of arcades and driving drunk and, you know, just losing control and not showing up in my marriage. Like that, that's a huge one. My life is unmanageable and I don't show up as a good partner in my marriage. Like that's not manageable. Um, so step one was fairly, uh, like, yeah, I can, I can do that. Step two, um, power greater than myself can restore me to sanity. Like I pretty, yeah, insane. I could, I got to that part pretty, um, pretty easily. I guess in hindsight, it's hard to say now, but I, yeah. Okay. Uh, like insane. I'm doing some insane things. By the time I got to step two, like I could see the insanity. Um, but coming to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me, like a uh, power greater than myself. Um, and, and I think the, the biggest thing, again, willingness uh, and, and the, and I latched on, I focused on a power greater than myself for once they didn't use God. Right. And, and I, I really just attached to a power greater than myself. Okay, well, what's a power greater than myself? There are tons. The weather, nature, universe, love, creativity, 
um, you know, there, there's a lot of different things now that I, that I recognize and that were very easy for me to connect with the weather was and nature were and universe. Those were the three that I went to and I was like, okay, if I can leverage those three as a power greater than myself, then I've got a chance. I can, I can continue this willingness thing. Okay. So we get through step two, step three, step three, like I said, you know, am I having to get saved again? Like, what is this decision thing? Uh, and my home group, um, in person, there are a couple of people that, that really simplified it and boiled it down for me. And it is making a decision to continue with the rest of the steps. Um, there is one of the, there, there are principles behind each of the steps and you can Google it. And, and uh, if you don't, if you haven't read them yet, I highly recommend, cause it was really important in interpreting the steps for me. But step three is all about surrender. That's the principle behind step three and surrendering my will, right? Like if I'm really powerless over alcohol, why am I trying to control it? Like, am I willing to um, surrender control over these things that I don't have control over like you and this meeting and um, what the weather's going to be today and who's going to show up at this meeting. You know, I saw three people on the meeting when it started and I was like, Oh fuck, this is not a good meeting. This is why am I doing this? And you know, like got into my head and like I want I want twenty thousand people to show up at my <laughs> like though no, that's my will. Uh and I can give that up because that's not necessary for me to be of service here. So making a decision, it really is just making a decision to move on to the to the next set of steps. Um my sponsor did make me say a prayer. Uh, the prayer in the big book, she did let me re reward it a bit. So I didn't have to say the thys and the vows. Um, I don't make my sponsees do that anymore. I, I let them write their own. Uh, I don't pray. I did try prayer and I don't, what I've learned is I don't pray. It doesn't work for me. I have other ways of communing and, and asking for help because that's the intention of prayer is to um, ask a solemn request for help. I think is the dictionary definition. Anyway. Um, so I, I worked through that and uh, got to steps four and five, uh, almost took too long on step four and went out. I, I did not go out. I almost went out because um, it was making me crazy. So I, I recommend uh, and I do this with all my sponsees. As soon as you get all this stuff written, uh, do step five as soon as possible, because uh, it's a precarious place to be. It's a very vulnerable place to be, to write down all of the shit that I've done. Uh, all of the shit that I resent, all the people I resent. I mean, family was on there, church was on there, religious institutions, um, the school I went to, you know, people, individuals were on there. Uh, and doing that fifth step with my sponsor uh, at the beginning of the lockdown too, you know, so this was a time when doing things virtually wasn't um, as common so people were like, oh, how are you going to do a fifth step when you're in lockdown? You can't. We did it over FaceTime. We sat on FaceTime for four or five hours uh, going through all this stuff. And it's just as effective as in person because I've done fourth and fifth steps in person as well. Um, so, you know, doing steps four and five in lockdown, right? Uh, it, I, did, I did experience a relief. Some people don't say they don't experience a relief, but I did experience a relief because it was just, it was, I could let go. Of, I could give this, put this out in the, into the space between my sponsor and I and whatever power grade of myself was uh, or is and get it out of my head um, and get it out of my heart and, and to start like making it concrete 
so that I could stop telling myself stories about it. And so that led us into six and seven, which uh, are a little bit nebulous in the big book. They're, you know, the 12 and 12 talks a lot more about it. Um, and uh, you know, steps six and seven are, are really, for me, about looking at the patterns of my what I did in four and five, like all the stuff, the patterns that came out of four and five, looking at like how I was showing up and dishonesty came up a lot. Perfectionism came up a lot. Um, uh, my people pleasing codependency, like that, that's, that's a big one for me. And, you know, so I was able to identify some of these things that I do. So that's step six. Uh, and then step seven is, you know, humbly asking God to remove it. Well, that doesn't, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in an entity that can remove something from me. Uh, so the way that I work seven is I act as if, uh, I'm going to ask if you're on, uh, smoking on video, if you could please turn off your video. Uh, um, so, uh, you know, just looking at seven as acting as if the, as if I am in a balanced way. Uh, you know, so perfectionism can help me in, you know, achieving a lot, but taking it to the extreme, um, that's my alcoholism. That's, that's my, the behavior that took me out. Um, and so that, that balance of perfectionism is achievement, you know, like doing a good job. I don't have to do a terrible job or be perfect. Like there's somewhere in between where there's a good enough. And so really connecting with that and acting towards that behaving that way making decisions that way changing my uh, disrupting the perfect thoughts the perfectionist thoughts and replacing those thoughts with i'm good enough like this is good enough uh you know i i can i don't this doesn't have to be perfect i can stop working on this thing because it's just showing up at work all the time i can stop working on this powerpoint deck and be done and like it'll be good enough right uh, so that's how I work seven. It's, it's not about some entity taking it away magically. It's, it's about me taking action to change my behavior little by little. And I regress and get better. Some days are better than others. Uh, and that's where progress, not perfection is. Um, it's one of my mantras. So then it got to eight, we got to eight and nine, um, you know, eight made my list of people I'd harmed. And then nine started to make amends. How do I make it right? Um, unfortunately, I couldn't make amends with my mom because she's she's gone, she's been gone six years now. And uh, so my amends to her are living amends. How I show up, <laughs> and this is where you know my relationship with women, my relationships with women, has really blossomed and changed. Because a big what I've learned is a big part of why I was resistant to women is because I thought all women were going to be my mom, right, and like show up the way that she did. And the unhealthy and toxic, you know, all of the the strain um, that that came with my relationship with my mom, and so I I make amends to my mom every day when in in interfacing with other women, and um, I have the best relationships with uh, other women now in my life, and that has been so important for me. Uh, I have some great relationships with men as well. Like this is not a men are like that's not that's not what it at all uh, but my issues with women were all about me my issues with women were because of me not because of them 
uh, and yeah, there's some crazy women, there's some crazy men. And like, I, I now know how to show up in relationships um, in a healthy way and, and how to navigate that in a detached way, um, which my Al-Anon program has really helped with. So, you know, as soon as I started making amends, it wasn't about rekindling friendships. It was about making things right. Uh, and today I live in steps 10, 11, and 12. Um, the way I look at step 10 is it's four through nine. It's doing four through nine on a regular basis, um, which is really cool because when I go back and work steps four through nine with my sponsees, I can like really be intentional and specific with them. And that just ingrains it in my brain uh, for myself, right? I can, and what I'm telling them, I can use the same tools that I'm giving to them. Uh, step 11, um, you know, prayer meditation. Uh, that is, like I said, I don't pray. Uh, and it's funny to hear people talk about meditation in this step as Eastern meditation. Like in 1939, they didn't, it wasn't, they weren't talking about Eastern meditation. So the way that I look at this step is really much more of a reflection and contemplation uh, and communing with in some sort of spiritual ritual where, and for me, it's writing. Um, that, that's where I do most of my 11th step. It's, it's very much of a writing. Uh, that's a spiritual practice for me where I just, I can get in touch and have a conversation with my higher self, with you know, my inner child, uh, you know, like whatever it is, or just, you know, vomit my shit onto the page. And it's, you know, now out of my head um, and, and uh, I can process it. And then 12 service work, you know, uh, having had a spiritual awakening, like I have had a spiritual awakening and agnostic atheist, like, fuck, a spiritual awakening, really? And uh, if you haven't read I know I'm referencing the big book, but I use the big book quite a bit um, getting sober. So uh, again, these are the parts that I love. Uh, the appendix, the second appendix in the back of the big book uh, is a spiritual experience appendix. And Bill W. talks about how they misrepresented um, spiritual experiences being religious. Uh, and he talks about that. It doesn't have to be that. Uh, it could actually be um, what William James calls of the educational variety. And like, those are the, the words, um, which William James is like original psychiatrist back in the 1900s. Um, but that is my spiritual awakening has been of the educational variety. It's been slow and consistent, not consistent, but persistent. And eventually it has changed. I have a different reaction to life now, which that is, representative of a spiritual awakening and I want to share that with people and that's what keeps me sober today is speaking like this having conversations with with people in Ireland that I've never met in person before and like who, who are these people like all these strangers um yet having something that connects us so uh in such a way that is, is just so powerful um and like I, I've mentioned my sponsees sponsorship has made a bigger difference than working the 12 steps uh, with a sponsor was for me because I get to work these steps over and over again with them. And I get to live in that with them. And it is when you're teaching somebody how, you know, these tools, it's almost impossible not to start using them yourself. <laughs> I found it impossible not to use them myself. So that's, uh, that, that's another thing that I think Bill W and Bob 
Dr. Bob got right and is working with each other, working with another alcoholic, working with somebody else in recovery has been huge uh, in staying sober and staying emotionally sober, not just physically sober, but emotionally sober. And, you know, life hasn't been easy. Life doesn't get magically easier. Um, my dad died in 2021 from COVID. Um, the vaccine was out and uh, he still died from it. And it, you know, there were, it, it fractured my family because of, of some of the way that it went down. Um, my brothers are completely estranged and angry at each other and all of that good stuff. And that's what took me into Al-Anon. Um, and so I, I've got a pretty short Al-Anon story. Uh, I go to Al-Anon once a week and I have done a fourth and fifth step uh, on some Al-Anon specific work. I've also done fourth and fifth step uh, work on food. Um, and it's been really amazing to, to take the 12 steps and apply them in these different ways to my life and to apply them repeatedly um, as things come up. And um, what I found is that the principles are a guideline for life. It is, you know, the big book says design for living. Like, yeah, like I could see that. Uh, but my program isn't what Bill W's was. My program isn't what Mark's is. My program isn't what anybody else's program is. So my program is mine. And I can share my tools and my experience. Um, but it's up to my sponsees, it's up to you, it's up to each of us to put together what works for us. Um, and, and I'm living proof that that does work and it can work. Um, and that you don't have to have a religion or, or a church or you know, any of that other stuff. And no matter what the, the substance or, or process is, um, you know, I'm a recovering workaholic, I'm a recovering sugar addict, I'm a recovering Al-Anon, you know, a family of addicts, I'm a recovering alcoholic. Um, it's all recovery, right? And it's all, it's all the same stuff, um, just applied in different parts of my life. And so I want to mention this book, I'll put it in the chat, um, but it's the Alternative 12 Steps, Secular Guide to Recovery, and Selfish Promo. We, I run a meeting every Thursday at 12 p.m. Pacific, where we go through this book. And it's been huge in my recovery because it is a modern take and secular take on the steps and, and how it applies. And it's for both Al-Anon, AA, like doesn't, doesn't matter what your um, addiction of choice is. Uh, the other book that I wanna mention that I know this group um, is a strong advocate of is Staying Sober Without God by Jeffrey Munn. Um, and he's been, Mun has been on uh, these meetings before. And it's just, his book is a really amazing practical guide. And so when I go through the 12 steps with sponsees who are sec, who are atheist agnostic, I use the big book, 12 and 12, this alternative 12 steps, staying sober without God. I use all the tools, um, whatever seems like the best thing at the time for them. And just making sure that they have um, some options because that's that's what was important for me knowing that I had options and I didn't have to just believe in this scripture that was forced down and I'm I don't have my big book with me but um, you know it's it's not all about one person's words uh, it's it's a wee program and I needed all of you I still need all of you uh, to stay sober and um, I think with that I'm going to close. Um, 
because I think that's it for me. Um, yeah, I really appreciate all y'all letting me, all y'all, little Southern, <laughs> Southern U.S. for you. Uh, I appreciate y'all letting me, me speak. And uh, thank you, Mark, for inviting me. I really appreciate it.